You're listening to The Cannabis Hangout, two girls, one bowl, and a podcast that is breaking the stigma of marijuana. My name is Brandon. And my name is Saba. We will be connecting with a community of cannabis enthusiasts by educating people, sharing stories from medical marijuana patients, and interviewing industry leaders while debunking cannabis myths. So we invite you to come roll with us while while we we break break it all down. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. I'm Brandon. And I'm Saba. And we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with a cannabis chef and educator who's here to normalize cannabis through food. He has earned the first ever High Times Top Cannabis Chef title while also partnering with Tricome Institute with Cannabis Education. So please welcome Brandon Allen to the Cannabis Hangout. Hey, Brandon. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for taking time to be here with us today. So let's just start from the beginning. Tell us where your cannabis journey first began. My cannabis journey began when I was 14, smoking out of a foil bowl in the high school field dugout. Foil. In the middle of nowhere. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Nice. Wow. Like, Sullivan County, PA. So this is like, I think like 98 or 99. Wow. Um, and for context, for people listening, I'm 36. So um, the uh, the entire county had one red light and I had 70 people in my grade. We didn't have a football team because we were so small. Mm-hmm. And because there wasn't anything to do, like the cheerleaders, soccer jocks, and band dorks, we're all friends and we're all in those things together. Like there, it was like a real, uh, there was a lot of cohesion there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when there wasn't band practice and soccer wasn't in, or even when it was, we were getting high. <laughs> uh, it was a good time. <laughs> that's uh, cool. So that's kind of like what opened up the, the door of cannabis to me. But I would say in the sense of a journey, what really got me to where I'm at today was um, I moved to LA in 2016 and I started using cannabis regularly. And I it was the first time that I ever looked at it as something that could have some type of therapeutic benefit. And it aided in weight loss that I was going through. Like I hit a plateau once I started consuming, it kind of sped that back up. And I got really intrigued by the science of it all and started researching galore. Uh, I actually was a student of Tricom Institute. And then I won the High Times Cannabis Chef competition. And that is really what just like opened the door and said, hey, welcome. You've got this like made up title out of nowhere, even though you did earn it. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to the industry. And it just opened up the door. And then, um, you know. I eventually uh, became a partner of Tricone. So, you know, the journey starting from 14 years old, getting stoned and watching Half-Baked over and over again to uh, actually medicating, so to speak, and looking at cannabis as something that could be beneficial to my life, um, that is really what just opened up the door. And I said, hey, there's an opportunity here. And as a chef, I knew that my future wasn't in kitchens because of some physical issues that I have, right. uh, mainly my back. So the idea that I was able to take my education and apply it to a completely brand new world, which is cannabis, and create a career out of it is uh, quite the blessing. That's pretty awesome. I know. And it's cool to be able to reflect back on where you started with your 
with your cannabis journey and like where it's your livelihood now. Like it is what you do. Yes, my my bills are paid. Yeah, which because, is so cool. Um, yeah, um, and it's funny because I don't sell any cannabis product. We're just strictly, and I never did either. I mean, I did infuse dinners and stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, we're we're not even in the act of selling it. We're just education, and uh, fortunately, it's something that uh, a lot of people are wanting and mm-hmm. in the need of. So yeah. uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that is cool. I feel like it's, I, I, Brandon and I talk about this often, but it's so fun being in the cannabis space without actually being involved in like the product or the growing side of it, or even like the marketing side of it, really. Like it's just, it's enjoyable to be just on like the education and like getting to interview people like yourself and, you know, just being present in the culture and community of it and being active and aware, but not actually being like in it, like some of like, you know, the front runners of our our community, which is really cool. Yeah. There's a lot of, I don't know if you want to call it secondary or ancillary or indirect paths to being a part of this industry. And you can do so without ever touching a, a product or even having to consume it yourself. Yeah. Uh, which is what's really interesting. And, you know, there are plenty of people that work in tobacco and alcohol that do not consume either. Not a ton, but mm-hmm. there, there are plenty, you know, but the yeah. opportunity of professionals who have a skill set that can be valuable to a booming industry is, I think, really interesting. Um, and that is definitely happening in the cannabis space. So, you know, there are there are plenty of uh, lawyers, for example, that, you know, go into law school. They may mm-hmm. have never even considered being a part of the cannabis industry. Yeah. Uh, but they saw a need and they said, you know what, this is where I'm going to go. And regardless of their intentions, as long as it's you know, ethical, then, yeah, hey, if you're a good attorney, uh, I don't care if you don't blaze at all, but if you can be valuable to our industry and help us out, then you're more than welcome. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that because for anybody that's listening, and I know there's people out there that want to get in the cannabis space, but they feel like a dispensary or, you know, is their only option. But I mean, this just conversation goes to show that there are a lot of other avenues that you can tap into. And the internet is a very open place. And I mean, even I, I've gone on like cannabis job you know, website boards and stuff. And it's actually surprising how many different types of jobs there are out there for the cannabis space without you actually touching product, like even on the software side. Oh my God. The software side tech in general Mm -hmm. uh, is, is massive. Yeah. Um, I, I've done some little research projects before where I've gone into, I believe it was LinkedIn and just typed in cannabis because we have people to reach out to us all the time uh, from Tricom Institute's perspective to say, oh, well, like, how do I get a job in the industry or what type of jobs are available in the industry? And I went on there and looked. And if you just replace cannabis with anything else, there's a job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and if you really wanted to hone it in, any type of manufacturing, um, any type, and not just like consumable manufacturing, but product manufacturing. Um, you've got a lot of things from like the catering hospitality side of things. Um, tech, like you mentioned software, uh, sales, I mean, just sales reps as a whole, there are more sales jobs, 
uh, for different cannabis brands, mm-hmm. just like there would be like for wild planet seafood that I worked for for a couple of years before I got into the cannabis industry where I was doing product demonstrations and recipe development in various whole foods markets. You know, it's the, as a, you know, essentially a brand ambassador, if, if, if someone who just wants to get a, their foot in the door and they have a sales background, which a lot of people do, especially younger people without any type of formal education, sales is a great avenue. Uh, they can easily get into the cannabis space. And it has nothing to do with cannabis at that point. It has to do with what type of salesperson are you? What is your skill set? And can you apply that to this product? Um, So what I tell everyone is whatever your interest is or your career focus is or was, take that exact same thing, find a cannabis company or a position that you can exercise those skills in and welcome to the industry that, yeah. that simple. You don't need to know how to grow extract or even work in a dispensary ever. And you can be really successful in this space. Yeah, that was great. Thank you for saying that. So sure. what would you say you personally use cannabis for? So actually what I will say at first is I'm on a little hiatus myself. Okay. Um, Tell us about from, that. From, yeah, from marijuana specifically from high THC. Mm-hmm. Um, I smoked on and off. I went from, you know, where I hardly touched the stuff at all over a year period at different times to smoking every night uh, for 20 some years. And a couple years ago, I started getting crippling anxiety every single time I got high. If THC was present in any dose that could be intoxicating, so more than, you know, mm-hmm. a couple milligrams, mm-hmm. um, Heart rate would spike up, paranoia, panic attack, just really not fun. And I have some, I have a a hypothesis as to what happened, which is probably a a podcast episode all in itself. (laughs) Um, But but think of it as, um, as you age, you're changing. A lot of things about you change. Your genetic expression changes. Um, You know, all of my hair used to be on the top of my head and now it's on my chin. (laughs) Uh, you know, so, uh, as you age, things change. And I think, um, due to some lifestyle changes, my consumption of cannabis, uh, should have gone down, Mm -hmm. but I maintain at the same of when I was pretty unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So the unhealthier I was, the more I needed to essentially, you know, achieve that balance that everyone talks about with the endocannabinoid system. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I got healthier, I kept consuming the same amount and I, I didn't adjust and adapt. So I think that that in a nutshell is kind of part of the reason why I started getting kind of these negative side effects because my body was saying, whoa, 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 you don't need this much. And I started yeah. wasn't listening. Mm-hmm. And I was like, nope, hey, okay, we're going to give you a little extra heart rate elevation here. Okay, well, now today we're going to make you a little nervous. Mm-hmm. And finally it was like, fuck you, Brandon, here's a panic <laughs> attack. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> I, I, so I just recently started working out, and as I've, you say that, and I feel like something kind of clicked in my brain where as I've started to get healthier, I feel like I haven't been consuming nearly as much. Like last night, I took a dab at like six or seven p.m., and I didn't really smoke the rest of the night. And Brand, you know me, like I mm-hmm. will always smoke for bed. I think I ripped my pen one time, and I was like ready for bed. So. I have yeah. noticed I've adjusted my consumption more because I feel like I've had to just kind of naturally. Because your body, you're changing. Yeah, my it. body feels like it's changing. Yeah. And the days that I feel like I consume a little bit more, I feel like it adds a little bit like 
to my depression and makes it a little bit worse and not necessarily mm. my anxiety, yep. but like my headspace is really cloudy and not clear like I want it to be. Well, you're, I'm glad that you're already acknowledging that mm-hmm. uh, before, and, and I'm not saying when, but if by chance you were to go through something uh, similar like I did, you know, people have to understand that like medicine is not supposed to be permanent. Mm-hmm. In, in, in rare cases, is it? Um, the idea is to approach any type of condition from multiple angles, being diet, exercise, right. uh, uh, therapy, physical therapy, uh, different types of medications. Uh, the list goes on. So um, don't get me wrong. I am a pure believer that if you want to be intoxicated, then go for it. And I really don't care of what, as long as it doesn't affect other people um, in a negative way, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be consuming cannabis regularly, but the type of cannabis we're consuming needs to change as we do as well. Mm-hmm. And after probably a good six to nine months of experimenting with different types of uh, products, Uh, different doses, uh, different cannabinoid profiles, I finally found that I freaking love smoking good quality hemp. Okay. Yeah. I'm talking like you open up a jar and it smacks you in the schnoz just like any other uh, super high quality pungent Mm -hmm. strain of marijuana. Um, And because of the other compounds that are in this plant, outside of cannabinoids that do have um, abilities to modulate neurotransmitters and, you know, provoke some form of psychoactive slash intoxicating uh, experience, uh, like terpenes, for example, in certain cases. Um, When I smoke flour, hemp flour, even if it has less than 0.3% THC, which is obviously hemp anyway, mm-hmm. um, or hardly any THC at all, I can get this really nice, like clear headed 20 to 40 minute buzz. Mm-hmm. I also have the tolerance of a newborn right now, <laughs> which is amazing. <laughs> so, uh, but I love it. It's like, I don't get anxious. I don't get paranoid. And, and even though I'm a cannabis chef, honestly, I love smoking. That is like my preferred uh, method. I, I like the, the, the taste of the smoke. I like the smell of the joint on my hand mm-hmm. afterwards. And it's probably because I smoked cigarettes for six years. Um, so there's a part of that that even yes, though I, yeah. I can't even be around cigarette smoke now, I still like I miss that. Um, I love smoking. Uh, so yeah, that is uh, to, <laughs> to rewind 37 minutes ago to the question. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, like really big on smoking hemp that's That's awesome and it's cool that you have gone through this like really long journey to figure that out and hone in and I feel like that's we have so many different types of listeners so it's good for those who don't like THC and don't want that high feeling to know that there's other options of keeping your body healthy and you know doing what you need to for your (laughs) mind and body and you don't actually have to get high a day in your life and I that's a common misconception with cannabis. And I thank you for saying that because I feel like people need to know that there are other options of medicating out there other than just like THC. 
Well, yeah, and you know, there the idea that this is a miracle drug cure all is complete bullshit. There are negative and adverse effects for some people. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not like a fraction of folks. It's not like a fraction of a fraction, rather. It's not less than 1% of people have, you know, negative side effects. There, there's more. Fortunately, these side effects are generally very short-lived, and there's no, um, you know, there's no, do I think cannabis can be addictive? Yes, but there's no withdrawal type of symptoms and mm-hmm. things like that. Like, it's not a cure-all. Yeah. So I think that, by talking about it and being real about it while not, you know, waving my dare flag around. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it, it provides kind of balance to the perspectives of cannabis when we're talking about it. Um, because, I, I mean, I tell you, I've met so many people in this industry, OGs that have been smoking forever, that have experienced a similar thing to, to me where they had to take almost a couple of years in between before they were able to start smoking again. Uh, or, or or being able to do an edible again or anything like that. So, um, you know, I don't like to necessarily talk about the cons, the negative side of cannabis, but I think by talking about it, it's actually going to prevent people from going too far mm-hmm. and from thinking that experiencing negative things is okay. Like everyone kind of jokes about, oh, you're just paranoid, man. You'll just get over it. Like, mm how how paranoid are you yeah and how often does it happen so mm-hmm. if people understand that hey smoking hemp or smoking cbg flower um or even doing you know different other uh, less intoxicating cannabinoids like delta 8 could be a, a viable option to still experience some of the amazing benefits of cannabis which is like the most vague word <laughs> um without you know being out of your mind uncomfortable and make it individual Right. right. Yeah, it's unique to everybody, and that's for everyone to explore, definitely. Setting up a new company can be difficult and confusing, but establishing a strong foundation with appropriate and necessary documents can help protect you in the long run. Yes, and with being business owners ourselves, we understand what it's like pretty well, I think. With BIC Legal, they practice in areas like family law, estate planning, business litigation, and review and draft contracts for your company while assisting in licensing applications, and so much more. And with the Oklahoma cannabis industry thriving, the rules and regulations related to cannabis are quite strict. Jade Pebworth with BIC Legal, she really enjoys working with companies from the ground up. So if you're looking for good legal help in Oklahoma, she's your girl. Let's get back to today's episode. Um, so Brandon, will you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do as a cannabis chef? Who am I? Well, I eat more meat than most people you could ever imagine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm like a diehard carnivore when it comes to cooking. I'm, as I say, I'm a recovering vegan. And when people ask, you know, why, why I'm not vegan anymore, I just tell them bacon. It's it's bacon. Um, (laughs) So I've kind of been all over in the world of different diets as a chef and I've, I've worked with different things. Um, so I have a unique approach to food and diet. And I also have a unique approach to cooking with cannabis that is very different. And, you know, I'm by far like the greatest chef in the world. I, I went to culinary school. I, I did competitions, which was awesome. Uh, I studied with an Olympic culinary chef, but I assure you there are 
plenty of people out there that with no degree or no fancy apprenticeship could cook me under the table. Um, and so I have like my certain area of food style that I'm comfortable with. And when, when I got out of culinary school, I went later in life, I immediately started really getting into cannabis. So instead of focusing all of my attention on studying cookbooks from around the world, I focus my attention on cannabis. Um, so, you know, I, I have researched this plant incessantly. I, I have studied more things than you could imagine. And earlier on, I kind of fell victim to where a lot of people in the industry do still, which is where I believe every single thing that's said, even if it comes from what we think is like an authoritative voice or publication. Mm -hmm. And I eventually started diving into the research even further and just really started to find a lot of contradictions, a lot of misleading information, a lot of text that's written as may, might, possibly, and maybe that is then shifted around and rewritten by, you know, media companies to say, instead of may, might, maybe, it says does and will. Um, and, you know, I started kind of finding a lot of just BS, so to speak, within the claims that there are about cannabis. And that inspired me to really dive deeper into various things. And, you know, through Tricome, we have like these different cannabis education courses. But when I put together the Cooking with Cannabis course that we did in partnership with the American Culinary Federation, I spent a lot of time trying to focus on what data is out there that matters and what are the claims or anecdotal experiences that people share that the data actually defies, but people don't care to look at it. Um, or anything sim as simple as like, well, let's look at decarb. Let's look at infusion times. What data is out there to support it uh, that is based off of, you know, published articles and lab testing and different things like that. And, you know, so I really tried to put together as a cannabis chef that's all-encompassing cooking with cannabis course that is as much about what we know as much as it's about questioning what we don't know. And so as a cannabis chef, my, my main focus is to, as you said in the beginning, kind of normalize cannabis through food, uh, but also get people to think critically and question all of the anecdotal, and I'm putting finger air quotes up in the air, anecdotal things that people have been saying for the past 30 or 40 plus years about this plant and question them because they may or may not be true. And a lot of the things that people are explaining to be true or to be definitive, there's zero data to rely on whatsoever, except for, you know, there was an article published in like the 70s. So everyone's just hanging on to that because they believe in it so much. Um, so hopefully that, that, that answers your question in a roundabout way of, yeah, no, um, it does. It's all I'm really a, good information. I'm a super, yeah. I'm a super skeptical cannabis chef that loves meat and is totally okay with being proven wrong. As long as the, the rebuttal is based off of data, not, well, I read a high times article that says mango gets you higher. So it's gotta be true. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot of that sometimes going around. Yeah. So how long have you been cooking for and what did you say sparked your passion for it, like cooking? Have you always felt the urge to like be into the cooking culture? I remember scrambling eggs when I was like three with my mom and never once thought that I would want to be a chef. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, my mom cooked for the most part throughout our, our entire childhood and growing up. And um, I always enjoyed food, but it was never really a forefront of, you know, or, or a, I, I didn't plan my events and dates and different things like that around, oh, this is the best ramen, or this is the best ramen place or the best this. To me, it was just like food was good. I really didn't have an established palate. Um, what actually got me into cooking was when I went vegan. Okay. And the reason why is because in northeastern Pennsylvania in 2000 and probably 10, I want to say, it's not like I could go to the everyday grocery store and find a plethora of vegan food. Right. Yeah. Like we had we had a Wegmans, which was kind of like um, Publix. It's kind of like Ralph's. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super, mm-hmm. You know, uh, like the higher end Kroger stores, mm-hmm. uh, Mariano's out of Chicago. Um, they they had the tiny little natural section, and just finding vegan stuff was God. It was so freaking challenging, but unbelievably expensive <laughs> uh, compared to like the way things are now. Um, and although I am not vegan uh, any longer, um, being vegan is actually what sparked it all because I was like, you know what? <clears throat> I can't spend $10 on a four pack of bean burritos. Yeah. I'm going to make my own and buying this vegan cheese that tastes like absolute piss is yeah. like, no, <laughs> thank you. You know? So uh, I started just experimenting with these different recipes and not necessarily trying to duplicate like meat or create substitutes, but I think one of the big things with vegan food is where texture, uh, I mean, outside of a salad, especially a lot of cooked food that's vegan, it lacks a lot of texture. Um, Sometimes it can just be mushy. And so I really tried to utilize plants to, you know, look appetizing and have that contrast in in flavors and, and texture and things like that. Um, and that's really what kind of sparked it all. And I was doing like, you know, I'd invite friends over and do these little vegan dinner parties. And when I've got, you know, diehard barbecue loving friends that would come over and actually enjoy the vegan food that I was creating, I thought that that was really interesting. And so I ended up, um, yeah, it was now they could have been lying out their asses. Who knows? Yeah. But like you can, (laughs) Uh, like it's to make vegan food yummy and like, well, and for people mm -hmm. who are normally like carnivores and not used to eating like that like you to be able to impress them like has to say a lot about what you're doing with cooking that kind of food yeah, if you know you want to impress a meat if you want to impress a meat eater with a vegan dish don't tell them it's vegan yeah yeah really though just say mm-hmm. just like this is what i'm serving today it's a butternut squash yeah. risotto with you know fried uh cremini mushrooms whatever i don't know just yeah yeah something that and just say it is what it is you know yeah that's um, the best way. instead of kind of labeling it yeah for sure but um so i ended up uh, running a little pizza sandwich shop with my family in state college pennsylvania 
uh, for about two years and I created a vegan menu and it was, it was simple stuff. It was like takeout food, uh, for the most part, you know, um, sandwiches and salads and stuff. And there wasn't much to offer like that in the community at the time. And I ended up just completely, literally falling in love with cooking shows. Um, and Anthony Bourdain, uh, specifically was reading his books and he spoke to me on multiple levels, um, outside of food as well. And his perspective on vegan and vegetarianism, I found very interesting. His, uh, first book, Kitchen Confidential was very much like, Hey, screw you. And his next book was, well, not really screw you, but unless you do this, then it's a screw you. <laughs> and I, I, was really intrigued by that. And like one of the things he said was, you know, if you're a vegan for religious reasons or, or vegetarian for religious reasons and whatnot, and it's cultural, he's like, I get it. But, you know, if you go to your, you know, your partner's uh, grandma's house and she makes meatballs that have been in the family for like decades and you choose not to eat them, because of something you chose to eat a certain way for no other reason. He's like, screw you. <laughs> I think he used uh, some other words actually. <laughs> um, so that, that kind of really hit me. And because I, I basically was falling in love with food yeah. more so than I was the idea of being vegan. And uh, one day my, uh, my girlfriend at the time, I, I made a giant extra cheese pizza at the restaurant and brought it back and, stared at it for about two or three hours before I finally said, okay, I'm going to do it. And I ate it. And then I looked the next day I had a double bacon cheeseburger from a, a pub and, uh, haven't looked back you know, since. I've been going, yeah. That's yep, funny. I've been going since then. So, so yeah. do you remember the first thing you cooked with cannabis and what that experience was like for you? Ooh, good question. So I know I was in LA and I know I made a flour olive oil infusion. Okay. And at the time I was doing keto strictly. So, and I'm like, a, I just love tacos more than anything mm, to me. Awesome. Like tacos, like saying a sandwich, it's yeah. just, it's a vessel, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 you, there's so much you can do. It's not just, you know, cumin and, and chili powder and paprika and onion powder and garlic and stuff like that with ground beef. There's so much more. Right. Um, so I probably made some type of an infused taco. Um, but one thing I can definitely say that I did regularly was microdosing my keto coffee. So fat coffee with butter, MCT oil, and cream blended up every single morning. I would microdose like two and a half to five milligrams. Um, that was probably one of the, it's, it's, it's not the first thing that I personally ever infused, but it's definitely the most consistent thing that became habit out of my early on days of uh, cooking with cannabis. Okay. okay. That's interesting. Yeah. That's, that's fun. good. It's always cool to hear. So what's your favorite dish to make? Uh, well, <laughs> it's, I, I mentioned tacos before, so I'm going to vaguely say tacos. Okay. Um, that's fair. I don't, I don't, yeah, I just, there's so many different things you can do. Um, if I had to, describe one of my favorites uh it would be braised beef cheeks Ooh. with the saw or the braising liquid reduced down into this really really thick nappe um 
What's amazing about beef cheeks is because they're constantly moving because the cow is constantly chewing, except for basically when it's sleeping or not, or when it, it's, except for when it's sleeping, um, is that they're really, really high in gelatin. So as you are braising them and all that gelatin and, and uh, muscle tissue kind of breaks down and then eventually kind of pulls or shreds, all that gelatin goes into your sauce. So you can basically end up with this really thick sauce without adding, adding anything mm. to it. And it's so silky and amazing. Wow. So braised beef cheeks with the reduction added to them. Um, I love contrast. I mentioned that about vegan uh, creation. So um, I love making, actually made a little version of it today for a video I just did, um, an apple pepper slaw with chunks of blue cheese just kind of scattered over and a like chimichurri or fresh herb or something like that thrown on there. Uh, mm. To me, that is just like, it's, it's everything that I love. You've got a really savory umami driven protein. Uh, you've got the acidity and the tartness and the, the little touch of sweetness that's coming in from the apple, um, that funkiness from the blue cheese. And then if you just put some fresh cilantro or basil even, uh, or a chimney on there. And now you've got that earthiness and acidity. It's just, it, it's a, it's a, as my father-in-law says, well, shit, that's a party in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Like, I, I just love that. And and you could do the same thing on like a toasted baguette or, right. um, even just like over rice, you know, yeah, uh, whatever man. you want to do. But, um, I, when I was in California, they had these coconut flour and cost of a flour, tortillas by a company called the real coconut and they were only like four or five bucks i think for an eight pack which was very inexpensive for a low carb Mm -hmm. um uh keto paleo friendly type of tortilla god we would just we would buy 10 of those packets at a time from whole foods and i mean at any given time when we lived out there we probably had tacos like at least three nights a week at home and then probably one night a week out. Sounds awesome. (laughs) Taco lover. Tacos are my God. (laughs) Yep. So how do you compose the perfect high while you're infusing food? Holy crap. That is a fantastic question. Thank you. Um, Okay. I think when it comes to an edible, let's not worry about uh, tolerance or dosing or anything like that. Let's just talk about the experience, okay? Let's just pretend that each of you and myself have our perfect ideal scenario of a a cannabis-infused experience. So regardless of what the dish is or what the first course is or whether it's an infused cocktail or a little appetizer or a mousse-bouche, something like that, What I love to do is to offer someone their first dose of a intoxicating cannabinoid, primarily THC, and some type of inhalation at the same time, okay? So when you're going to take a hit of a joint or just a a vape pen or flower vaporizer, as you take that hit or a couple hits, you are going to essentially reach an intoxicating state within a couple of minutes. Sometimes it's as soon as you exhale, depending on the person. 
And if you take the edible at the exact same time, which takes anywhere from 45 minutes or so to an hour for, for most people to kick in, what's beautiful is that the edible high goes up immediately. I'm sorry, the, the inhalation high goes up immediately. And then it kind of gradually fades down over the next hour or so. Well, in the meantime, the edible high is gradually working its way into providing you an intoxicating experience. And where they meet in that little sweet spot where the inhalation high is kind of like almost gone and the edible high is just kicking in, I think is just one of the most amazing feelings Mm -hmm. because you literally can feel the high shift. Like there's always this moment where your body high just kind of starts to work its way into the equation. Um, and also it's a little bit calming, um, compared to just the inhalation high by itself. So from a dining experience, I always like to have an edible uh, or an ingestible form, generally a lower dose for the most part, because you just, you know, you don't want people blasted so they don't remember dessert or, you know, the, the nightcap. Um, and so if you're timing your courses out, which I would generally, a lot of the dinners I did were very small and focused on cannabis education. I wasn't just like serving food and music in the background and in the kitchen. I was there. I was describing all the ingredients. I was explaining the story behind why I'm making what I'm making, what the ingredients were. I was talking about the cannabinoids that were in them and everything like that. So earlier on in the dining experience, I like to get a lot of that out of the way. So generally between the first and second course, it wasn't, you know, 20 minutes apart. There was, there was quite a bit of time. So by the time I'm delivering, like, say, the second course, whether that be, like, a another type of app or it's the entree, um, my diners would be at that sweet spot, most of them for the, for, for the most part, would be at that part where the edible high is just kind of creeping up on them. Mm-hmm. The inhalation high is down. They're mentally coherent. They're mm-hmm. not stoned. Um, and then they get to enjoy another dish and I at that point would kind of let people choose like if you want to take another hit or if you want to pack another flower vaporizer or whatever the case may be um and kind of give them the option to let that spike back up again Mm -hmm. or just let that edible high reach its point where it itself kind of starts to flatline and then the next course that's infused will begin to creep up on them again so you're kind of like intentionally plateauing the high mm-hmm. so it's stable got it um, so that's something that sorry to cut ahead. you off just just so i can understand so about each dish how many milligrams would you say like do you ballpark it is it like and then like how do you break it down by each bite or like not bite but like portion or serving size or do you like pre-serve it so they already have their portion size and then that's the, like the five seven however many milligrams like how did how does that work yeah, so it depends on what it is that I'm making. Got um, it. For the most part, a lot of the dinners that I do, I like to make some type of homogenized garnish. And the size of the serving is going to be, or the dose will be based off of the size of the serving. For example, I wouldn't take a chimichurri and dose it at a teaspoon. Okay. There's just not enough there. Yeah. I would dose it at like a tablespoon or two tablespoons. So, and then... 
I would always try and infuse per person, mm-hmm. or I would say flat out, like each course has five milligrams or each course has, um, or I'm only going to give you 10 to start. And then we're going to shift over to other cannabinoids like CBG or whatever else is out okay, there. You know? interesting. Um, so I really try to say like when it comes to doing a, an infused dinner, I mean, even if people are with their friends, one good luck knowing what your dose is, unless you're buying something that is an infused oil or tincture, um, or unless you have access to lab testing, which most people don't. But when it comes to being like a, as a, as a cannabis chef, if you're dosing people, you need to know exactly what you're giving them mm-hmm. and saying that like, Oh, this pound cake, um, has 10 milligrams in it. Like, how do you know? Yeah. You don't, mm-hmm. you know, even if you were like, if you're going to make cupcakes and infuse them, infuse the garnish, infuse the icing. And when you're putting your icing on the top, you're doing it by weight, not just by, oh, this has got icing on it. Well, how much more icing does that have compared to the next one? How do you know that this is five milligrams versus 17 milligrams? How properly homogenized was your infused part of the dish? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm super strict when it comes to that uh, because, you know, it's it's not just like cooking with random friends who they don't care if they get 5, 10, 50, or 75 milligrams, uh, you know, from a public setting or even in a private event type thing. Um, you know, you got to be very careful with dosing. So I have done plenty of cannabis dinners where I would make a plate and I would take like an infused herb oil. Uh, and I don't mean just herbs and cannabis, but like a infused basil oil that had, you know, five milligrams per teaspoon of oil and I would literally drizzle it over the dish. Okay. Why? Well, the basil herb oil paired well with the dish, but also nothing in the dish is infused until the very end. So if I have a diner, a guest that says, listen, uh, I think I'm good. I can say, sure, not a problem. I don't have to infuse it. But you can still enjoy a cannabis-infused dining experience even though one of the dishes you're eating is not, or I'll throw a different type of cannabinoid in there um, and go from there. Oh, interesting. Okay, that's so cool. It's nice that, like, you offer the consumer almost the control of what they want and do not want, which is nice, especially on the infusion part. But I feel like that's important to the experience. Yeah, and I haven't been doing uh, cannabis dinners like I did when I was in – California and whatnot. And so for anyone who's listening, if you want an example of a chef who is actively doing this full time, uh, is working in a, in a cannabis restaurant in LA, it would be, uh, chef Chris Sage. He goes by the herbal chef. Um, I think that he from like, I'm the dork that likes to talk about all the sciencey things. Okay. He is, is, the one who's actually practicing them every single day with a team of people okay. in a restaurant setting. Cool. Uh, so kudos to him. And so if anyone hasn't heard of him, the herbal chef, look him up on Instagram or look up their website. Um, no affiliation with him whatsoever. I just have a lot of respect for what he's doing. And he is one of the chefs that does that same type of thing where he's focusing on microdosing. He's focusing on different cannabinoids. If someone doesn't want a dish infused it's very easy to, to not have that so if anyone is looking to actually go to uh you know a cannabis event that 
is regularly happening in the LA area, that is the chef that I would recommend uh, going to check out for sure. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, thank that. you for sharing that. So let's flip the script a little. You're big on education, which we love. Tell us a little bit about the Tricom Institute and what your role is there. Yeah, so my official title is Director of Research and Development. Uh, we're a very small company, so I don't really have a title because uh, we all wear multiple hats. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. So as a cannabis education company that was founded by Max Montrose, uh, Max created the Interpening Program, which is the first cannabis sommelier program, and that basically teaches people how to identify uh, flower quality and effects. Um, utilizing basically your eyes and your nose and your education. Um, and I was a student of Tricom when I first moved to LA. Uh, I was very intrigued by cannabis. And what I realized is that when I would go to a dispensary and I would ask, like, what's good, the, I, I could go to the same dispensary three times a day and get a different answer. And I had no idea about the quality and I could just look at the flower and be like, well, this last batch I got looked a hell of a lot better than this one. Mm -hmm. What's going on here? And so I wanted to learn how to evaluate cannabis just the way I could food. I mean, I knew what a nicely marbled ribeye looked like or pungent rosemary, but I had no idea about cannabis. So that's what I learned through Tricone. Um, Fast forward about a year and a half later is when I linked up with them doing some consulting and eventually became a partner. And when I was getting involved with them, um, they had gotten their first course online for dispensary training. And fortunately, before COVID, uh, we all had a big conversation about, hey, we need to get everything online because uh, in-person courses limits us, expensive for other people to go to. Like, let's just focus on getting everything online. So we actually filmed um, three online courses right before COVID hit, and they were being edited when all that happened. So um, the first course we have is um, our dispensary training course, which is called Cannabis Products and Sales Training. So this is utilized by dispensaries all over North America, as well as you know we have students all over the globe that take this course. And this is basically designed for them to understand cannabis products and then how to talk to their customers about them. So that's why a lot of dispensaries are, are utilizing that, consultants. Uh, we have you know health coaches, um, marketing directors, because they want to know more about the products that they're actually working with from a marketing perspective, not just, um, you know, this is what it looks like, and this is the copy that's on your label, but what does this mean to the customer? Um, so we have that course. We have our Extraction and Concentrates course, which was done – in uh, partnership with Murphy Murray, who is out of Denver, Colorado. Uh, she works with, or she is the owner of Sano Gardens. Um, she's like the extraction guru of the world. She's absolutely amazing. Um, we have our interpreting course, which is online, the Canvas Only program. We have a consumer course called Canvas for All, um, which if you guys ever want to have a course to just like direct people to uh, or offer to them for free, I have no problem like creating some type of uh, connection with the two of you to be able to offer this to people because some of it's on YouTube, but the whole thing is on our site. And it's basically for the cannabis curious or what we call like second first timers. So people like my parents that smoked back in the day and haven't touched the stuff since it was 8% dirt, <laughs> um, they, they can take this course and learn a lot about it. Yeah. And then uh, the most recent course we just came out with in January of 2022 is 
um, the Cooking with Cannabis course in partnership with the American Culinary Federation. So it's our most advanced course, the longest course. And the way I wrote the course was it's not a cooking course. I'm not here to teach people how to saute, roast, braise, truss a chicken, uh, you know, fabricate a chicken or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I'm here to teach you how to work with cannabis in your style of cuisine. So whether you're the diehard vegan or carnivore, gluten-free, paleo, anything in between, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. The course is going to teach the student how to incorporate uh, all these infusion methods and um, processes into their style. And that's the biggest thing. Um, and the, the course takes, there's, there's a lot of technical information. There's a lot of demonstration and, and procedural things, but I also take a perspective, uh, through the lens of kind of entertainment and philosophy. Um, a lot of things I dive into, like the entourage effect is so much more than just cannabis. Uh, the entourage effect is the set and setting of your, your dining experience. It's the music that's playing it's the the scents that are in the air the style of the font on the menu how you talk about these cannabinoids utilizing the power of suggestion and planting little seeds and kind of orchestrating the experience that a guest has and i think that there's a lot of power that event coordinators maitre d's cannabis chefs that uh, sommeliers can all have uh in providing these amazing dining experiences with cannabis but it's not just amazing because the food's really good or because the cannabis gets them high it's super amazing because of what they're told about it how it's described uh and and how they're explained the effects that they should experience all throughout so it it's it's much more than a cooking course that's awesome i feel like there's uh, it there's there's such a lack of education. So when I hear about things like that, especially when it comes to like not just cooking, but like beyond that and the whole experience of the after the cooking part, right. there it's so cool because it it's just something that's I feel like hasn't really been tapped into in the cannabis space. So the fact that you're doing it and offering it is just such a cool thing and gives so many people an opportunity to explore things that they may not have ever explored or learn things that they may not have found on the internet, which can be quite overwhelming, especially when you're, you know, trying to learn about cannabis and everyone has an opinion and, you know, all the different things until you sit with like a cited source, it, it can be very overwhelming. So it's, it's awesome that you guys offer that. So, um, yeah. And go ahead. And, and to just to jump in with what you said about cited sources, I think one of the things that people need to understand more than anything, it's not what we know, it's what we'll find out. And everyone needs to accept the fact that we're all going to be wrong about cannabis at some point. Yeah. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. But if we don't change what we say about it and how we're educating people when new science is coming out, that's the problem. So we're just in this incubation of this crazy industry and, and, and the research that's within it. A lot of what we think we know today will change tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just got to embrace it. And that's something that, you know, in from Tricom's perspective, we've done before, uh, especially in the cooking course, because some of the ideas that I talk about, there's not data to back. Um, it's 
partly anecdotal and I try to do my best to say, I think this is the case. Or I know this is the case because I have data and I have other things to back it. But at the end of the day, we have to all be on board with, with the, the idea that uh, we need to ch be able to change our minds and not hold on to OG truth mm -hmm. from the 70s and 80s and 90s and so forth. Like we, we just we have to all be malleable and adapt to the new research yeah. that's coming out. Be so. able to shift perspectives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So sure. with with that, what's a piece of advice you have for somebody listening that you wish you would have known prior to learning as much as you know about cannabis, something that's just an easy segue into learning more that's not overwhelming? So part of the, I guess there's probably two answers. Um, the first is what I just got done explaining. Mm -hmm. I wish I had been able to go back to like 2016 or yeah 2016 2015 2016 when I really started researching cannabis um that just because it comes from what looks like a really professional scientific paper doesn't mean that it's true for humans mm -hmm. because a lot of the research that's done and a lot of the claims that are made about anything not just cannabis pretty much anything health or medical related um a lot of it comes from studies that are done on cells or they're done with mice or rodents of sorts. And although that research is really, really freaking incredible and interesting, it doesn't mean that that result will happen for a living, breathing human being. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that would be the first thing. Like what happens with an isolated terpene in an aromatherapy study or when that terpene is squirt squirted on a cancer cell on a Petri dish, just because the study says A is what happens, mm -hmm. doesn't mean that what's going to happen to you is A. It could be Z or 72 or nothing at all. Yeah. So that would be kind of like the, the first bit of uh, take everything with a grain of salt. So that would be the first bit. And then the, the thing that connects to that is understanding the different types of research and how valid they are or how relevant they are. You know, when you um, go into like PubMed or Google Scholar, you'll find like case studies, um, which is, you know, uh, a doctor observes something with a patient or a, there's a small group of patients. And then there's, you know, double blind randomized clinical trials, which are like you, <laughs> when, when the data says that, X percent of people had this result for those types of studies, then it's pretty damn accurate because of the amount of research that went into it with the placebos. Um, so I would, I would say that the, the research is kind of the biggest thing that I would hone in on is understanding yeah. that what happens in a mouth doesn't necessarily happen to you. Mm -hmm. And the type of study with a human being also really, really matters. And that's where a lot of the claims that are out there about cannabis um, are, are are kind of thrown around loosely or even not even from like the medical perspective, but just from an effects perspective, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people are taking aromatherapy books that talk about terpenes and whatnot, and they're saying, oh, well, if I smoke this weed, that that terpene is going to give me the exact same result. Like, well, no, because... Now, it's not an isolated compound. You're consuming hundreds of different compounds. Mm -hmm. And 
it wasn't injected into your 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 belly like it was with that mouse at a super high dose. Instead, you just lit that terpene on fire and are now metabolizing it with these different enzymes in your lungs that are converting it into completely different shapes um, and different compounds, different metabolites or derivatives. So the the effect of that is nowhere is not going to be the same. But if you read about it or you hear about it and you're told that this terpene will do this and you know that one of your strains or concentrates has that terpene in it, if you believe that it's going to happen or you're going to have that effect, there's a good chance it will just because of the amazing power of the placebo effect, which I think is probably the most potent drug out there that that ever will be. 100%. Yeah, that's a really great explanation. You're very well spoken. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So I thought a lot about a lot of these things. You also yeah. asked me great questions. Oh well, thank so, you. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. you're not like you know, it, it, it's good. You've obviously you've done a little bit of research. I'd yeah, say about yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so. So, um, Brandon, what would you say that, um, we like to ask everyone this question, but what's a stigma that you would like to see change that revolves cannabis? Hmm. I'm trying to think of one that's not the stereotypical, like, stoners are lazy. Um, (laughs) um, a stigma. Yeah, there's a lot of different ones. I would like to see change. You know, considering I'm a a chef and food is my life, um, I think that when I don't don't know if this is a negative because stigma is something that is negative. So, um, and this could be perceived as negative to some people, which is that an edible is inherently a sweet. Yeah. Okay, so you say edible and people think gummy bears, pop brownies, uh, lollipops, you know, chocolate and all that stuff. And for a lot of people, that's not a stigma. It's not a bad thing. Um, but for many people who don't eat sweets, they're uh, very low carb, uh, keto, paleo, they're hyper, hyper specific on eating, uh, you know, foods without processed ingredients and sugars and things like that. Um, I would say that, and maybe this isn't a sweet, maybe there's just a different word um, that we could put in place of that that's not as um, negative sounding. Uh, but I, I wish that people to understand that when you when someone were to say edible or an infused cannabis infused product that they would also consider a freaking beef cheek taco yeah or yeah or a a, a kale oh, I'm sorry I of all things I, I gotta talk shit about kale I hate kale <laughs> a kale salad <laughs> okay or some scrambled eggs or some bagels and locks with your cream cheese. you know like mm-hmm. I, I wish that people would will become more and more open to the idea that um, you don't gotta eat a pot brownie mm-hmm. or a gummy bear to experience that or the other thing you don't have to eat you know and this is a complete personal perspective okay so i buy i don't want anyone to get their panties in a bunch or triggered here when i say like to me like there's really nothing medicinal about a brownie if you like eating brownies go for it but from like a 
a when we when we talk about the foods that are that are in our industry, the primary foods that are in this industry, while also talking about medicine, 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 health, 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 health. I'm sorry, but your like 50 grams of sugar in that brownie is yes. not healthy. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so, you're not wrong at, so at I, all. Yeah, and don't get me wrong. There's there's at times where it's really healthy to eat that fucking brownie. Yeah, because yes. it's good for your soul. Yes, <laughs> yes, you know? for sure. Uh, yes. So, but thinking that you have to go and buy gummy bears to medicate, you know. So mm, I get um, what you're saying. I think that. Yeah, so there, there's there's probably a deeper conversation, or maybe you're finding a better word than stigma. But if I had to like really pick like a stereotypical stigma, uh, it would be that uh, what I said earlier. Like like there are stoners out there that are really freaking lazy, and like that's that's going to be anything and everything. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of alcoholics out there that are really lazy. There's a lot of people that are totally sober that are just totally right. lazy. Lazy is a is like an inherent human trait for some people, you know. Mm-hmm. Sure, um, sure. But there are a lot of hardworking people in this industry that are, if I consumed or or if a, a person with zero or or like a, a really low tolerance were to consume the amount of cannabis that they did every day, they wouldn't be able to move. Meanwhile, these people are running multi-million dollar companies, managing dozens or hundreds of people, and they're kicking ass. So cannabis, marijuana, THC, smoke and weed, whatever you want to call it, is definitely um, not inherently a lazy folk type of activity. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That was very well said. Thank you so much, Brandon. Well, I think this wraps up today's episode. Is there anything you'd like to add before we hop off? No, I just, I'm, thanks for doing what you're doing. You know, you're, you're, you're both great at at coming up with these questions. I really appreciate that. You're great listeners. You chime in like your, your podcast is, is a good, reflection of i think what this industry is and you know we're talking about uh, stigmas of you know lazy stoner type thing there are some pretty stonerific podcasts out there that um you know they're fun Mm -hmm. but i think things like what y'all are doing are really going to further help normalize cannabis because i really this our conversation here if if we replace the just removed cannabis out of the equation it would be not much different than any other podcast we'd just be talking about food or whatever the case cooking as a whole you know and it wouldn't Mm -hmm. sound or come across any differently than a lot of these other like massive podcasts are out there so uh i appreciate that and for you know having a professional image and vibe and tone and uh, i wish you guys all the best with the podcast and i hope to come back some other time yeah thank you so much brandon we yeah, really appreciate you your words. kind words oh well guys go sure give thing. him a follow on instagram to keep up with all of his yummy creations and life adventures at chef brandon allen on instagram and thank you to all of our listeners as always for tuning in and as always all stay medicated Thanks for listening to today's show. 
To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.